We're really grateful for the dads in our church who invest in their wives and their families and their children. It's a huge deal. And so, Jerry, can you pray for us today? We are going to be diving into... So the Providence series is sort of split into two giant halves, and we're finishing the first half today. And the second half of the Providence series is going to be God's providence specifically over salvation. So um, now even saying this out loud, it can be so easily misunderstood, but we're, we're going to be walking through uh, the five points of the tulip, okay? You, you may know the, the five points of the tulip over the next uh, at least probably 10 weeks or so. I don't know how long. And I think the tulip is, can be very easily misunderstood or misrepresented or whatever it could be. So we want to be as careful as we can and do about two weeks per letter of if you don't remember, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, which is the most controversial, what that means, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. And so we'll, we'll spend about at least 10 weeks probably on those, maybe more, who knows how long this will take. And, uh, but we're excited. So we've been covering providence over just general things and now providence over our own salvation. If God's sovereign over everything else, surely he's sovereign over our salvation. So we're going to kind of go through in detail uh, what that looks like from a biblical perspective. There's tons of scripture, tons more scripture. Mm-hmm excuse me, to get to on that. But uh, Jerry, could you pray for us and then we will dive in. a lot to look forward to there. Gracious Father, we come before you and we are so thankful that you're sovereign. Um, You are overwhelmed this with your love and your grace and uh, your goodness. And as we come before you today, we are um, so grateful that you've given us your son and along with him now, we know that you'll graciously give us all things. That would mean sanctification through your word today, and so we ask that you would do more than we could ask or imagine. Um, as you continually do, I thank you for uh, Mark and Greg, and pray that you would give um, us wisdom, that your word would come alive, uh, and thank you that it is alive and active. Sharper name, double-edged sword, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, you can see on the screen last week, we talked a little bit, and we didn't get into this as much as we want to get more into it today, but two ways of talking about God's will or God's two wills in the Bible. You have God's uh, secret will or his sovereign will or his will of decree. There's lots of different names for this. God's will by which, according to Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that sense of God's will, his will of decree or his sovereign will is that which actually comes to pass. Uh, This is his sovereign will. Here's an example. I think we left this out last week. It's a simple illustration. You've heard it before, but it really is, it really gets at this idea. If you take a great Shakespearean play, okay, and you think about a character in the play, if a character in one of Shakespeare's plays gets murdered, who committed the murder? Well, the character in the play, who's the murderer? is the responsible person. Now, I know these are made-up characters. I know, but there's an analogy here. So in the Shakespearean play, if a murderer kills someone, that murderer is the one who actually did the action in the story. And who's responsible? That individual, right? They may, they may face consequences within the world of that story. Is it also true that Shakespeare ordained the murder of that character as the author of the story? Yes. And is Shakespeare guilty of murder if one of his characters commits murder? No, we actually say he's one of the greatest writers of all time, even though all kinds of terrible things happen in his stories, but he's working for ultimate ends. So I know you would say, well, those are made up characters. Yes, but God, made up characters may be greater than fictitious characters. I mean, real people might be greater than fictitious people, but uh, God is also greater than Shakespeare. So uh, <laughs> this is an analogy. Uh, so God can sovereignly write the script of history, all things that come to pass are according to his sovereign will, 
and yet he is untouched by the sins of the individual characters in the, in the, in the story. Uh, we are fully and entirely responsible and to be held accountable. So that's God's will of decree. God's will of command is what simply God desires us and commands for us to do. Uh, so thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all their, thy heart. I'm going King James here all of a sudden. All, all that heart, soul, mind, and strength, okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. So God, God's commanded will is what we are responsible to obey. Uh, and, and we want to add a third thing at the beginning today, which we didn't touch on, but I want to hear Greg on this because uh, Greg's, Greg uh, has some background story with, with this issue. But there's something else which Kevin DeYoung has kind of labeled God's will of direction, Greg, what, what are we talking about when we talk about God's will of direction, and what are maybe some problems with how evangelical Christianity in America approaches that version of God's will? Uh, not just evangelical Christianity, but I would say independent fundamental Christianity especially um, also deals with this. Um, and this whole will of direction uh, has to do with, like, God has, they, they take the, the idea that God has, like, his decree, um, and therefore, God has like this blueprint for your life, God's will for your life. You've heard, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. And, um, you know, if I can just stay in the, the center of God's will, if I can just stay as close to that as I can, then that means God's going to bless me. Everything's going to go the way it should because I'm in the center of God's will. And, you know, if things start going bad somewhere along the way, I must have gotten out of God's will. I'm somehow away from the center of God's will. Um, and it could be, you know, I, I, I sinned. I don't know if I did. Um, but obviously, if I'm struggling or things aren't going right, I must have done something wrong. In many circles, this is referred to, they, they do believe God has two wills. God's perfect will, God's permissive will. Let me say at the outset, we do not endorse these categories. We do not believe they are biblical. They are not helpful. They are not healthy. Okay? Um, but they are what many people in many churches have been taught in terms of God's will. And we are responsible to know what God's will for us is. And if, if we obey God just, just perfectly, we stay in his perfect will. Um, and if somewhere along the way, whether knowingly or unknowingly, we go astray, we do something wrong, um, bad stuff starts happening, we are relegated to God's second best plan B, plan C, plan D, his permissive will, meaning He's permitting you to do this, even though it's not his best for you. Um, and many, 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 many earnest believers have been hamstrung by this. They have been hindered by this. They have been traumatized by this um, because it produces one of two things, one of two types of responses. One is, well, I better be the most perfect person I can be because I sure don't want to be stuck in God's permissive will. I don't want to be stuck in second best. I'm going to miss out on something. I'm going to miss out on God's best for me. Um, the other side is, well, hey, I'm still in God's permissive will, so it really doesn't matter what I do. And so it creates two bad types of thinking, two really bad uh, understandings of the Christian life. One tends toward very strict legalism. The other tends toward a... A, a form of license, a form of indifference. Hey, I'm still saved. It really doesn't matter. I can't lose my salvation. So you know what? I can be in God's permissive will. I'm just going to do what I want to. Um, and neither of those, neither of those are good. Okay. Um, but that's what uh, it, it, and even if you didn't have those categories, 
that is still a very common way of thinking. Like, I, I, you know, I've got to please God. I've, I've got to do what's right. And, you know, God's going to get me if I don't do right. That's the mindset. Like there's this red button that God has in front of him. And he's like waiting for you to screw up so he can push that button and zap you. Like, and, and I, I see some of your faces and you're like, that's crazy. But that is common theology in a lot of churches. That is common theology in a lot of churches. And it is damaging. And we want to say there is a better more biblical way. Because those terms, as they are expressed and as they are practiced, are nowhere found in the Bible. They are not in it. That's why seeing things with these, this understanding of God's will of decree, what God has planned, what God has ordained, and then God's will of command, like in terms of this is what God says, this is what he expects of us. This is so much more helpful because this is actually what we see taught in the Bible. Okay? Um, and, and so the reason why we take a few minutes to mention this is because if that has affected you, if that has, if, th if that was kind of the air you breathed, there is freedom mm -hmm. from the worry of wondering whether or not you have screwed it up once and for all. There's freedom from that. Um, what we're going to look at is as we unpack these things a little more is the view we're looking at doesn't encourage lax laxity towards sin at all. Like if you think that if you hear that or you think that's what we're saying, it's not. Um, but it frees us from the burden of, of trying to discern what God has never promised to reveal. God has never promised to say, I'm going to show you the blueprint for your life. And it's up to you whether or not you keep that and meet that. And therefore, you can receive my greatest blessing. Every single bit of any good that we get from God is of grace. We do not earn one thing from God, not one. It is all of grace, freely given, undeserved, purchased and paid for by the blood of Christ. Hear that, hear that. God understands that we are fallible, that we are flawed, that we will stumble, we will fail, even though we try not to. And as we start to understand God's sovereignty in our lives, we can see that even our missteps, oftentimes took with the right intention, trying to please God. And I'll look back 10 years later and said, man, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. We see God had a purpose in taking us through that. So as a believer, you cannot ruin God's will for your life. Let me say that again. You cannot ruin God's will for your life, okay? Because it was never dependent on you to begin with, okay? Please take heart, take comfort, be encouraged, find freedom from the, the burden and the guilt of thinking it's all up to you. It never was, and it never will be. It, just jumping off that, that's really helpful, Greg. So just to give like a, a kind of an example to grab hold of, just to give one, there's a thousand versions of this. Here's an example. A student is graduating high school, a Christian student, and they've got two legitimate, God-glorifying possible college options in front of them. Both of them are gonna, will promote godliness. There's, there's great churches in both places. There's financial stuff is very similar in both places. The majors that they want to pursue are very similar in both places. Now, if that's the case, if you believe in number three, the will of direction, you believe God's like the magic eight ball, right? That you, you've, you've got to sit there and you go, okay, God... I don't want to ruin your plan for my future. So if I choose college A, which is just as legitimate from my perspective as college B, but your plan that I was supposed to figure out ahead of time was college B, and I go to college A, I could not end up meeting the right person to marry. The kids I was going to have are never going to be born. I'm going to wreck my life on a non-moral issue. There, there's nothing morally better or worse about A and B in this particular scenario. So 
Kevin DeYoung wrote this great book. You've, many of you have read it, Just Do Something. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle, no one remembers the subtitle. It's something like how to, how to um, make decisions without liver shivers, fleeces, parting clouds, uh, you know, magic eight balls and all this stuff. And it, his, the premise of the book is so great. He, he goes through these three different versions of God's will in chapter two. And he says, listen, um, when it comes to uh, God's sovereign will, just trust that God's going to take care of that. Look at God's command will, his will of command, and do all you can to promote holiness in your life because we know God's will for us that we're responsible for is our sanctification. First Thessalonians 4, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. So I know that what, what, if, if there are three job options, the question I'm asking is, I want to find a job that is not dishonoring to the Lord, that is a legitimate and good j- job. And then Kevin Young says, don't panic. Uh, don't be locked in paralyzing fear. I'm going to choose the wrong job or wrong college. Look at, the, look at the options in front of you. Get wisdom from people who are godly and wise, who know you and understand things that are older than you and have common sense knowledge. They can help direct some, your steps. And then guess what? Just do something. Just choose a college. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, just choose your career. Choose something. Move forward. As long as it's not ungodly, move forward and, and make decisions and don't be paralyzed. So that's part of that. And then another part of what you're getting at is this. And, and you kind of clued us in on this already. Th- there is a under-the-rug prosperity theology in the will of direction. Here's the idea. The the idea is if you go to the right college, then you're not going to get sick. You're going to find the right person to marry, blah, 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 right? That's the idea. And here's what happens. So this, say this 18-year-old girl is trying to decide on college. She's like, is it A or B? God, please show me. There's no clear sign. So she chooses A. Oh no, she gets on campus. She's looking for signs. Is this the right? Oh no, no, no. And then say she gets really sick the first month on campus. And if she's been taught this theology of number three on here, she goes, oh, I must have not chosen the right will for, for my life because God is showing me I'm sick. I've been sick for the first month with mono or something. I, this is awful. I clearly chose the wrong college and God is showing me. So I'm out of, so I need to quit this college. I need to go back. I need to get my finances worked out, go back to college B and go over there and fix my will. Do you understand how disastrous this theology is in practicality? If you try to live that out. So uh, if you look at this verse on the screen, and I want to hear from you, Jerry, on this too, but look at this proverb, 1921. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Is that not way better news? Yes, we should make plans in our mind. We should use wisdom, biblically informed plan making for who you marry and having children and all the, there's a bazillion decisions to make in life. Yes, plan, use godly insight, wisdom from older friends, at the end of the day, rest in the fact that no matter what, the purpose of the Lord is going to stand. Yes. There, there, God's purpose for your life is not a threat. That's, what you're, that's right. what you're getting at. And there's a tremendous freedom. Jerry, what would you talk about the freedom here? Yeah, chapter 16 is full of those kind of uh, promises too in, in Proverbs. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will succeed. The Lord has uh, made everything for his own purpose. Um, and man, that goes on and on. Verse 9, verse 33. And Chapter 16, two things that in response to that. Number one, and we're going to talk about total depravity next week, but we wouldn't just be on plan C, D, or E. We'd be on like quadruple W by now, wouldn't we? Like <laughs> I know we would be, be way down the line. How many things do we do that aren't, that aren't right? right? So even logically, I don't think that holds any water. And then, Greg, what a great point to say this whole thing doesn't that we take way too much, I guess it's our pride that we think we have so much to do with everything. He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Who started it? 
the Lord Jesus. God did. Who finishes it? God does. We are guaranteed that through all the trials, through all the events of life, God is in the business of sanctifying us to make us more like Jesus. I can hear the words from Papa ringing in my ears. It's the all things. All things do work together for good because we love him, because he's called us according to his purpose. He who gave us his own son, how will he now along with him graciously give us all things? The same all things, everything that's, that's good for us. And that doesn't have anything to do with the liver shivers that we, that we have going. That's not, that doesn't, it's not how we have to operate. And, uh, and freedom is the right word there. And, and the most treacherous versions of this would be like this. I married the wrong person. Right. I mean, this sounds outlandish. This, you know this really happens. You've heard, you've heard people say this, haven't you? You know what? I wasn't paying attention to God's will and direction. And if I, you know, I, I married the wrong person. And so I think God is leading me for the sake of my happiness and the good of everybody to, to separate from this. I'm, I'm leaving this person with no biblical grounds to do that. Well, that's the worst version of this. It, it, I love Vody Bauckham. Vody Bauckham says, you know, how you, you know how you know if you married the right person? You married him. Look That's how your, you know. Look on your finger. Yeah, he, he, he held up his wedding ring. He goes, yeah. "Who's my one? Who, like, what if I didn't marry the one? I know who the one is. I got a ring. I've got the one. That's my wife." Okay, so it's like th- th- we got to trust that God uh, obeying God is not going to automatically lead to worldly prosperity, and obeying God, even if it leads to hardship, God is going to work that also for our good. So we've just got to abandon this whole thing. Greg, any other thoughts on this? Well, yeah, Proverbs chapter three. I want to go, if y'all will turn there real quick. Very familiar verses, but I'll tell you, like I struggled with this, the view that we're critiquing right now when I was in college, especially, and I would come to these verses here in Proverbs chapter three, and I would have a hard time accepting them because this went against that whole perfect permissive will type of thinking that there's this blueprint you got to figure out. I got to know what God's will. Don't want to miss that. Um, and, and I, I, it took me a while to accept this, not that it was any less true, but I had some bad thinking in my mind to overcome, but listen to this. Like you want a a methodology of sorts. Um, obviously there's more we could say, but look at verses five through eight. Okay. This is absolutely huge. And, and hear it in light of the fact that God does not require you to figure out every detail of your future before Mm. it comes Hear it in light of that. What does God call us to do? Trust in the Lord, in the Lord with all your heart. And what? Do not, do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because you aren't trustworthy. Okay? Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. So whatever you do, whatever you set your hand to, whatever you set your focus to, acknowledge him, live for his glory, glorify Jesus. You got option A, option B, whichever one, acknowledge God in that direction. And what will happen? He will make straight your paths. He will, not you. He will. Okay. Look at verse seven. Here's the other thing. Be not wise in your own eyes. Meaning again, trust God that he knows the path he's going to lead you on. If he's going to direct your path, he's going to do it, not you. Fear the Lord. Here's a big important thing. Turn away from evil. We can do that. We don't need a, a sign in the sky for that. We know what God's word says about evil. And lastly, what does he say the result of this is? It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. 
And so he's basically, this is what the New Testament says when Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like commit your way to him. Keep him as your focus in whatever you do. And he's going to be with you. He's going to guide you. He's going to be faithful. He's going to make sure you get to where he wants you to go. And you're not going to always know what that is until you get there. But he will always be faithful to get you where he wants you to be. Man, there is freedom in that. Just commit it in your heart and mind. Lord, I just want to acknowledge you. I want to glorify you in this undertaking. And that's why, again, with wisdom from Scripture and friends, people say, look, I, I really don't think you can glorify God in this. Well, if it's something I can't glorify God in, I'm not going to do it. No matter the material prosperity that can come. But if it's something I can glorify God in, then I don't have to worry if somehow God's going to be opposed to that. Like, I just don't have to worry about it. That's why I just do something. If it's something I know I can glorify God in, if I have some talent in it and I want to do it, and other people are like, yeah, man, that'd be great for you. Go for it. Go for it and commit it to the Lord and give it everything you got and see what God does. That's great. So uh, we, want, we want to jump back in for the next few minutes. And uh, you can turn to these texts, but I've, I've got them on the screen just because there's so many. We're going to just zip through. So get your mind ready here. We're going to zip through a whole bunch of texts really quickly. And our goal right now is to show uh, God's will of decree, his sovereign will, like Shakespeare writing the play. And then we also want to show God's will of command and how sometimes these things are not the same. And if that sounds strange, uh, just we'll, we'll look. Some of these texts are more familiar, some of them less familiar. But we'll start here uh, with uh, Exodus 7. And we, we talked about this text, but this one's got both in it. So just look, uh, look right here in Exodus 7, 2. You shall speak all that I command you. This is God talking to Moses and Aaron. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. I'll just stop here. I know I keep standing up these days, but just real quick. So this right here, tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Out of his land that would be God's will of command. Crystal clear. What is God's will for Pharaoh? His will of command is, let the people go that they may worship me. That's easy, right? But then here's where God's sovereign will is different from his will of command. His will of decree is different. This is strange. But God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So do you see? God's will of command that Pharaoh is responsible to obey is to let the people go. And then God is going to sovereignly intervene to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh doesn't listen and he disobeys. And why would God do that? He has purposes for his own glory. But do you see the will of command and the will of decree in the same verse? Let's keep going here. So Deuteronomy 2.30, but King Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, which he should have done. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. That's God's will of decree. Joshua eleven nineteen. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel. Uh, they took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, which was sinful, uh, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Judges 9, 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So again, that came from an evil spirit that God sent. 1 Samuel 2.22, remember Eli 
and his two sons, what were their names, Hophnius and Phineas. And you remember, Eli was a decent man, but he was not a great father in terms of dealing with his rebellious children. And listen, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel. This is bad. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Bad. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear uh, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, look at this. It's amazing. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, just stop. Was there, was the, were the sons deliberately disobeying God's will of command? Absolutely. Now, look at the next part. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. They kept sinning. Why? For, here's the reason, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's the will of decree. That's the sovereign will. Do you see them both in the same text? God's commanded will was stop sleeping with the women at the tent of meeting. That's terrible. God's secret sovereign will was God ordained that it continue without himself being touched by sin so that they would ultimately die for their sin. Is that not astonishing in the same text? Thoughts on these before we go any further? I'll continue, and you, you yeah. guys chime in. So 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. So you see, the harmful spirit from the Lord was tempting him to kill David with a spear, uh, which was clearly against God's commanded will. Look at this one. This one is, um, this is 2 Samuel 12 uh, to David after Bathsheba. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Now, this is amazing. This is God's judgment on David for Bathsheba. Thus says the Lord, behold, I, God speaking, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And then a few, a little bit later, so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, which was clearly sinful. 2 Samuel 24, 1, this one's famous, David taking the census of the people. Remember this one? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, that is God, incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. And then look, David, 10 verses later, this is what David says. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, what? I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now let's go back to the first verse. The, Lord kindled, the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. And do you see? What's God's will of command? Don't find your trust and strength in your numbers, which is what David did when he wanted to know the numbers. He was trusting in his own numbers for his strength, not God. And that's a sin against God's commanded will. But did God decree sovereignly? Did he incite David to do this very thing? 
Yes, and here's the crazy thing. In the First Chronicles version of the same story, do you remember this verse? This is how First Chronicles tells the same story. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, wait a second. Second Samuel 24 on the screen says that the Lord incited David. First Chronicles 21.1 says Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Is anyone confused yet at this point? I mean, here's, I think, the way this works. God ordained, without sinning, that Satan be the agent, the secondary cause used to directly tempt David to do this sin, and David gave in to that sin, and God had a purpose for that happening, to, to bring judgment on Israel, and yet David was totally responsible for his evil, even though God, in his sovereign plan, brought it about. Is, that, is it not mind-bending to see that? So you have God's will of command, don't number the people. You have God's will of decree, his sovereign will, he incited David through the agency of Satan to number the people. So thoughts on these kinds of texts? Well, this one takes us back to Job. Um, I mean, we, we're very familiar with Job. I think you guys talked about that somewhat uh, in previous weeks. You know, it was ultimately God who said, said to Satan, have you thought about Job? Satan's wandering about to and fro, you know, doing his thing. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan, you know, obviously challenges God. And Satan is the one, you know, the secondary cause who, who brings these things about, but he only does so under the permission of God. And this is one of those places where we have to be very careful because yes. we hear some of these texts and we're like, how is that right? How is that fair? And this is where we have to remember that we are limited creatures we are finite. We are small. There is so much we don't understand. And it is always to our detriment. And it is always to our, it is always bad for us to assume that we know as much or better than God does. Mm -hmm. um, and because again, we have to come back to this and, and it almost seems cliche to say it, but you guys have done this. We've done this repeatedly here at North Ave. And I think it is the right thing to do. Go back to the cross if ever event was preordained to the detail, it was the death of Jesus for our sins. Um, every bit of it. Like, we couldn't be saved if this didn't happen. And the, the people who crucified Jesus, who, who, who whipped him, who scourged him, who ground that crown of thorns into his head, who put those nails in his hands and his feet, they did that because they wanted to. Um, and they are responsible for every bit of pain and suffering they inflicted on Christ. And yet what they did accomplished exactly what God had planned. And so we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. Even if we can't understand it at the moment, why would God do that? Why, why this? Why that? Why not this thing instead? I don't understand. I thought God, you know, again, will of decree, will of command. Why would God decree that people disobey that is outside the realm of what our minds can handle. And we have to acknowledge that. We want to put ourselves like Adam and Eve in the place of God and think that we can be on the same, same playing field as him. We are not divine. We are not God. We are not on that level. We are down here. He is up here. So we come to these texts and we have to come humbly and be like, wow, that, that, that's a little uncomfortable sometimes. But you know what? I can trust that God is good. I might not understand everything he does all the time, but I can trust he's good. He will never not be good. He will never sin. He will never do wrong. And so we have to keep in mind, if God has planned it, he has a good reason maybe 
a thousand good reasons. And we've said this before too. Whenever something happens, you know, God, God probably has 10,000, 100,000 reasons. We're only going to be aware maybe of two or three of them. Okay. We're only going to be aware of two or three. Here's another thing. If we could go up and this is hypothetical here, but picture this, if we could go up into heaven and we could see all of history and all of God's plan completely, every detail, every reason why we would not change one thing of everything that happens. We would not. And so we have to trust that God being perfect and us being imperfect, we got to trust that God is only going to do what's best. He's only going to do what's right. And he's good. And we can trust him. As Spurgeon said, if you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. Um, Trust that this sovereign God who can direct people in events like this has promised to only be working for your good. Like, and that's where it comes back to. We, we trust his good heart and plan for us as his people. Yeah, and latch on to these and put them up everywhere in your house. For my thoughts, or this is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So we believe what we don't understand. We trust what we don't understand, and that's a lot. Yeah, and just I know we, we, Greg just referenced these kinds of texts, but in Acts two twenty three, these are these are a couple of verses we talked about them last week. These need to be drilled into all of our memories. We need to have these close at hand. These are so strong on this text. So this Jesus delivered up. Clearly, this is the worst sin that ever happened: his being delivered up to die on the cross. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So who planned the worst thing that ever happened? God did, right? It was also the best thing that ever happened. At the same time, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It says, then it says this, it does not eliminate human responsibility. So God planned that Jesus would be delivered up, and it says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Were they breaking God's law when they killed Jesus? Yes. Did God mean for good what they meant for evil? Yes. And two chapters later, Acts 4.27, I still think this is the single best text on this whole issue in the whole Bible, perhaps. For truly, this is a prayer to God. For, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the one who had him whipped, along with the Gentiles who crucified him and the peoples of Israel who called out for his crucifixion, right? To do, so these four groups, they did to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I don't think there's a verse in all of scripture that says it clearer than this. So Herod mocked Jesus. Remember, do a miracle for us, show off. And Jesus said nothing to Herod. Herod mocked him, sent him out. Pilate had him whipped to a bloody scourge and said he could be crucified. The Gentiles nailed him to the cross and Israel brought it all about by threatening and you know, manipulating Pontius Pilate into that position. And yet it says they did, these groups did, whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. They meant it for evil and are totally responsible for it. God was sovereign over all of it and was completely untouched by the evil of what was happening, and yet he was still in control throughout the whole process. Um, another thought, like I'll go back to what I was saying, and then because it plays into what I want to say about, about this as well. Uh, in Isaiah 40, it talks about, you know, God looking at, you know, humanity, and they're like grass, we're like grasshoppers. And you, you think about, like, yourself as a human being, what can a grasshopper comprehend of your plans? I mean, let's just be honest, not much. 
And so let's keep ourselves in perspective. That's not to diminish who we are as the image of God. It's just to put us in our proper place. We're, we're like grasshoppers hopping around, you know, um, doing our thing in comparison to, to God, who is so much bigger, higher, wiser, smarter. Um, and you think about this too. Like I remember hearing John MacArthur say, say something to this effect as he was talking about, and it was in the Gospel of John. And he was like, so many times Scripture will, in the same breath, talk about the absolute sovereignty of God and our full responsibility, and it is not interested in trying to resolve the two. It just affirms both is true. And we have to be comfortable with leaving it there sometimes because we, you know, we, we, and it's not wrong to be curious. It's not wrong to want to try to, and, and we have ways we can formulate this and try to, you know, nuance it just right. But there, there, like I've said before, there are just some things that we will never be fully like on board with in terms of our full grasp of it. These things make sense to God even if they don't fully make sense well, to can us. Can I jump in there? Yeah. So, so the, just going off that same point, here's the question. We've got to be honest about this. It comes down to literally an act of trusting God's word just mm-hmm. as it is. Yep. I can't fully comprehend what we've just said, how it all makes sense. That's not, you're not being, okay, this, this, put it this way. You're not being asked to explain how this works. No Christian is accountable for explaining this. I don't know anyone who can. Edward's got about as close as you could get to explaining it, and he couldn't fully explain it. No one can fully explain this mystery of God being sovereign over sin without being touched by sin. But here's what we've got to do. We've got to believe what Scripture tells us is true. And what Scripture says is, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. When you are tempted, it's by your own evil desires, not God. God does not put evil inside of you or something like that. God is not to be blamed for sin. I'm morally responsible. That is clearly taught, would you agree, throughout the whole Bible? Crystal clear. God is holy, 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 not defiled by sin. At the same time, you have verses like this that say he predestined the worst sin that ever happened down to the details of the whipping and the spitting and the scourging. God predestined every bit of it. And the Bible says he can plan the worst thing that ever happened without himself being touched by the evil of the worst thing that ever happened. And although we can intend evil in what we do, God always intends good in his glory in what is done. Whether it's Pharaoh's hard heart that God intended to show off his plagues, to show his superiority to the Egyptian gods, so all the world would know Yahweh is the one true God, well, God has a plan. And the ultimate end is his glory, He's never aiming at evil. He's always aiming at his ultimate glory. And I just have to say, do I believe that the Bible is true when it says God is sinless and is sovereign over human sin? The Bible teaches both. I don't have to explain it. I just have to believe it. God is untouched by sin, and yet he is still sovereign even over the sinful acts of mankind. Don't you think that God getting the glory there is maybe a a really big part of this? Explain that a little bit more. God is doing everything for his glory. And that's sometimes outside of what we're thinking. Yes. Yeah. So when, that's a good question. I'll just give one ber- one way of answering it. When Judas Iscariot allows Satan to take over, essentially, Satan entered into Judas and Judas said, okay, for 30 pieces of silver, I'll trade Jesus. In that moment, Judas prized, treasured, honored money more than the son of God. And his own motives were, I covet money more than God. I I love money more than God, okay? He meant evil. God, though, preordained that this would happen, prescripted it in the Psalms, that that Jesus' close friend would betray him in this way. And when that happened, God's goal was not to show that money is more valuable than he is. 
God's goal was to put his son on the cross so that all the world would know how glorious his love is and how uncompromising his holiness is. So that for all of time, even on this Sunday, we will sing praises to God for the cross. So Judas's aim was covetousness and greed and idolatry and money. But for that same action, God's purpose was his ultimate glory and the exaltation of his love and holiness and virtue and goodness for all the world to see. So the same act can be viewed from two radically different perspectives. You have the sinner's view, which was meant for evil. You have God's view, which was meant for his own ultimate glory. And the scripture, again, teaches both of them and often in the same statements or in the same sentences. Yeah, Greg, I'd love to hear some of the takeaways here. But certainly one is we are just called to, in Mark's race, she said it, we are called to trust God. A great book, Jerry Bridges, Trusting God, really simply named, and he goes through three things, and that when I'm not trusting God well, that's what I try to do is take, go through these three things. God's all-loving, so he wants what's best for us. God's all-knowing, so he knows what's best for us. God's all-powerful. His arm's never too short. He's always able to do what's best for us. So when I'm doubting anything that he com- promises in Scripture, I'm, I'm waffling on one of those three or maybe two, or maybe all three of them. So kind of make a little checklist to say, okay, wait a second. Yeah, he's all loving. Yeah, he's all knowing. I, I know that he's all powerful. I can believe it. Wow, it's really quiet all of a sudden. It is. Like, <laughs> I mean, that one, that's really good what you, what you were saying, Jerry. Like God's, um, he's all loving, all knowing, all powerful. Um, I think, again, like, at least for me, like, and and some of this is going to be dependent on where our own weaknesses are in terms of our our trust in the Lord, Um, because you might struggle with trusting God in an area that I don't, and I might struggle with trusting God in an area that you don't struggle. And you'd look at me like, why is that even an issue for you? The Bible says this, da-da-da-da, it's that easy. Um, We're all going to be at different places. And so what we, we do need to do is pray that God would give us wisdom and insight into our own hearts. Um, Lord, help me see the areas where I don't trust you like I should. Um, that I don't, you know, I, I profess that you're sovereign, you're good and all that, but I don't always, my heart, my mind don't always resonate with that. So Lord, help me see where that is in me, what the specific is um, or specifics in my own life, where I'm not trusting you the way I need to. And God is faithful to do that. Um, and, and remember, the pro, God is very patient. What, what seems like slowness to us is not slow to God. Um, you pray a prayer like that, you consistently pray it. God's going to be faithful to answer that. Like God, God, again, his goal is our good, our sanctification, our, our Christ-likeness, okay? Um, and over time, God is going to show us those things. And he's not, it's not just going to be one day you're having a Bible say, oh, wow, I get it. Yeah, thank you, Lord. It's going to be through circumstances that, that you're not looking for. It's going to be through pressure that you go through, times of, of lack, times of need, times of struggle. Um, and you're not even going to be aware of it at first that that's what God's doing, that he's going to show you those areas that you need to trust him more in, that you are, are, are being prideful in, that you're holding on to your own view of things rather than trusting God. And, you know, and, and pray, God, help, help me see long term what these things are and, and help me respond with humble faith. Because guys, let's just be honest. When, when sometimes when we're going through things and God is bringing things about that we particularly don't want to go through, um, we're, we're not, uh, 
oftentimes we're not just immediately going to be like, okay, God, I trust you. Wow, this is great. We're, we're going to be like, why am I going through this? It was God, what is going on? Like, and again, we, we have those moments and we preach truth to ourselves. We're like, no, remember God, God has a purpose in this. And we, we start praying in that moment, God, help me see what you're doing. And if you don't show me right away, help me trust that you've got nothing but good for me in this. Um, and you know, the other thing too, like this is one of the big things, why it's important to have people around us that know us well, that love us, that, that we trust, that can speak into our lives, because sometimes we're going through something, um, and we're not going to understand it, but God can use another person just to encourage us, just to remind us of truth. You know, we, we've used the, the imagery of, you know, one of the reasons why you don't want to be away from the local church. It's like an ember away from the big fire on its own. It'll burn for a little while and then get, you know, start to, to get cool and you bring it back and then it heats up. Sometimes you and I, we need the strength of someone else's faith to get by. In those moments, it's going to be, um, and I've, I, I could, I don't have time, but I could mention things in my own life, um, my own journey where my faith is not strong, but somebody else's is. And I want to be around them because I know they trust in God and I want to be around somebody who trusts in God. That's why, um, you know, just embracing this uh, with all our hearts and being unashamed of it. Um, like you do not know sometimes how just talking through the sovereignty of God and trusting his goodness you have no idea how God might use that in the heart and the mind of someone else who's struggling. And it's like, I know that's where I need to be. That's not where I'm at. But man, I'm thankful for them because that's exactly what I know I should have. And, and I'm thankful that they have it. That's great. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up here just, just, uh, just to repeat one thing from last week and then we'll pray. So just to kind of recap, number one, God's sovereignty over sin is never an excuse for our own personal sin. Never, ever justify your sin by saying, well, God's in control. He's writing the scripts. Right? That, that, is a, that, is a, that is a horrible abuse of a doctrine that is not biblical. Never excuse your sin with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Number two, God's sovereignty over sin does allow us, after we have repented of our sins, to forget what's behind and press on toward what's ahead. So don't be lost in your past failure because God has a purpose for that and we can repent and move on and forget what's behind. And number three, God's sovereignty over sin does allow us to forgive others no matter what they've done to us because what they meant for evil, we have to say with Joseph, God meant for good. So it's one of the most liberating doctrines that no matter what happens to me, I can be empowered to forgive because God had some mysterious but good purpose for my growth through what happened to me. Even if it's extremely painful, it involves much tears and, 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 and time uh, of, of repentance and, and healing from that. Uh, so... Yeah, I think we'll stop there. Anything else, Jerry? No, I love that, that last point. And it's not only that you can forgive, you really have no option, right? We're to forgive like God's forgiven us. He has completely washed our sins away as far as he's from the West. That's what we're to do with others. He has chosen not to remember them anymore. So if someone's wronged us, and certainly they have, choose not to remember it. Forgive them like God's forgiven you because... They may have meant it for evil, and they probably did, but God meant it for good. Can you close us, Greg? Yeah, let's pray. Father, God, we stand humbly before you. We just bow our hearts and our minds. Lord, you are so high above us. Lord, it, it is, um, you are beyond description in that way. And Lord, I pray that you will help us be humble, Lord, as we think about you, as we speak about you. 
Lord, we can only go with what you revealed in your word. Help us be faithful to what is written. Um, Lord, help us, guard us from going beyond it. Uh, Guard us, Lord, from thinking that we know better or that we could have done it better because when it's left to us, Lord, we only mess it up. Um, But Lord, because you're faithful, we have hope. Lord, help us find great comfort knowing that you are sovereign and that even in the most painful and dire of circumstances, you are at work with a purpose for our good because you love us. And Lord, when, if we could see all that you are building and all that you are planning through our pain, God, we would see something so glorious. God, we would not change any of it. And so, Lord, just sow that deep into each one of our hearts. Lord, if, if there are those here who have been burdened by a wrong view of your sovereignty, Lord, even now, may they be freed from that. And may they, Lord, be able to enjoy the sweet freedom of, of, of the path of obedience while trusting that you are going to direct their steps. And that is what you will do. It is not what you have called them to be ultimately responsible for. Help us be as obedient as we can be each day with what we know. And Lord, there's a hundred million things outside of our control. Help us trust you with all our hearts in those things and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and you promise to direct our steps. God, we praise you and we thank you that you are faithful and you are good and we can trust you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.